Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the... <laughs> the Cersei Institute podcast network. We're having a great I am, time already. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Angelina Stanford. The other reason I went with An- Heidi first, Angelina, is because she's sitting next to me. Um, oh, that's sure. the only sure. reason. Yeah, I, I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah, the only reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Her, I couldn't, Alphabetically, she I was, should go last. I was going to say, first name and last name are both after that's your right. alphabet. Right. So. Right. The alphabet is crying for the natural order of things. That's all I'm saying. The reality is that I went first, and after that, it's all at that point who cares? yeah right um it's conference we, week folks if you couldn't tell from david's near hysterical <laughs> beginning we are uh, it is conference week i'm leaving for charleston today people will be listening to this on friday of course so we'll be in the middle of the conference mm-hmm. at that point and i suspect some people will be listening on their way home from the conference so it was a great conference everybody yeah <laughs> amazing my talk was phenomenal <laughs> exactly well attended well received standing uh, ovations for a half hour it was weird well you know if it's if people are now listening to it and being like that was maybe angelina's worst talk it's gonna be really awkward <laughs> to this cars on the way home but we, see yeah it's amazing so i'm leaving for charleston like in two hours um and the reason heidi's in studio is because she flew in and she's driving up with my parents so she had she flew in i don't know why'd you fly in so early cheaper um no because karen kern said hey why don't you fly to charlotte drive down with us Oh, okay. So, and I said, I would love to do that. Okay. And one thing led to another, and, and here I am. Yeah, here you are at 7.52 <laughs> so, in the morning. Yes. Um, actually, that's just West yes. Colorado time. In Colorado. But, um, so we're here to talk about Susan Glasswell's A Jury of Her Peers. We're in the midst of our short story, quote unquote, unit. Um, and there's a lot to talk about in this story. Mm-hmm. We have- Wait, start off with your question of, have you read this before? <laughs> well, I'm going to. I'm going to. <laughs> First, though, I want to say thanks to everyone who who is a Patreon supporter of Close Reads. Uh, in July, instead of doing an ad read, we are want to thank all of the people who have been supporting the show. We had a couple people join, a couple new people join this week. A couple people I saw uh, bumped their their patronage up from two dollars to five dollars, or five dollars to ten dollars. So, Aww, thanks, we are, guys. Yeah, we're really appreciate appreciative of. There's no. There's nailed n- it. There's definitely a hundred percent chance that I cannot speak this morning so um <laughs> but yeah thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show um hopefully you're enjoying your close read swag maybe we'll be we might be we, we might maybe be releasing some new stuff sometime soon just gonna drop that out there um i know that um everybody's been uh, around Cersei has been really um i don't know if pleasantly surprised in awe of how much support financially even there is for the show um the conversation has always been there but the financial support is like what really makes it so we can do this every week it takes a lot of time you know we gotta pay editors it's a lot of my time it's a lot of angelina and you know heidi's time all the people who are participating there's hosting fees all that kind of stuff so um you know we would we would probably do it i shouldn't say this we'd probably do it if nobody was you know 
being our patron, but um, it makes it so we can, you know, sort of do more of them and strategically explain why we're continuing to do them to the people who make decisions for this company. So uh, we're appreciative of everybody's support. Um, so uh, with that, let's dive right in. We have a, we're not gonna be able to go quite as long as we sometimes do on these stories. And this is a longer story. So let's dive right in. Susan Glasswell's A Jury of Her Peers. A Jury of Her Peers was published in 1917. Um, it's loosely based on a true story. Did you know that? No, I, did. I didn't. On a, you did know that, Angelina? I did, yes. Yeah. On a, the 1900 murder of John Hossack, who Wikipedia tells me is not the famed abolitionist of the same name. I did not know there was a famed abolitionist of the name John Hossack. So uh, clearly a gap in my education. Um, and Susan Glassbell was, she had covered that story as a journalist. So she then wrote a story about it. She actually originally wrote it as a one-act play. She and her husband ran a early um, theater company that they started. And so she wrote a one-act play. Um, and I can't remember now if that was called. Called Trifles. Trifles, that's right. Yep. And um, then it became the story, which was published for the first in... Uh, was it? Uh, every Week magazine. I think, yeah. Oh, awesome. Sorry. Yeah. 1917 in Every Week magazine. Yeah. March 5th, 1917. So... Um, it's a, it's a murder mystery. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why I asked you to ask me if I had read this before, because I've never read this story before, but I read the play and did not know the story was based on the play. So I start reading this story and I'm like, this is going to happen. This is going to happen next. I was like, you know what? I predicted everything that was going to happen in the story. And I thought, you know, I'm a good reader, but I'm not that good. <laughs> so I, I pull Susan Glass because I knew I didn't know this title. I pull Susan Glassball off the shelf and I flip through and I see my notes all over trifles. And then I realized yeah. the same thing. And I was like, well, that explains that. Well, when you, so yeah, yes, when, I totally saw the ending coming. Just when, wow. When you've read things multiple times, it turns out <laughs> a lot easier to be a really good reader. <laughs> so people, all these people who are like, how do you guys see things? Well, we read things more than once. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there are things to do the first time, of course, but except Heidi, Heidi's never read this more than once. Well, I mean, you've never read before. Right. Now I've read it twice, once this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so Angelina, so we're coming in, we're in the, uh, we're in the studio and we're, we're waiting for you to, to log on and I'm flipping through to find the book and she looks at me and she goes, so do you like this story? And it was very like, I can't tell if it's a leading question or an honest question. So I'm going to, we got to find out just whether Heidi likes this story. Do you not like the story, Heidi? No, I love this story. Okay. I thought compared... So it, was, it wasn't a leading question. No, no, no. I just wanted to know. Oh, okay. Um, but this, even more than Desiree's Baby, which we talked about last week, is a story by a woman for women. So I'm, I'm curious it's impact on, I am going to oh, read do, this. Do story. I like it despite the fact that it's like man hating? Is that what you're saying? Well, <laughs> I, I, maybe that's what I'm saying, but I think that's not what I'm saying. I am, um, Desiree's baby could be read as a very human story. Oh, right. Right. And whereas this is like, this, which, is, this yes, is a woman's this story. This is on the nose. And yeah. so I'm, From a, I am going to read this differently than you are, no matter what, right? And so I'm, I'm just curious the impact on a man. And I'm not talking about defensiveness, just how do you read it? Well, Angelina, I want to, I'll answer that question in a second. Yeah. I'm curious, Angelina, do you, what, do, what do you think? Do you like this story? Oh, I love just this story. I loved it the okay. first time I read it years ago and loved it again this time. 
So do you feel like it's, um, like sort of, I, I, how do you say it, on the nose, right? Do you mm-hmm. feel like it's kind of on the nose in the way that she's describing it as sort of like a, I mean, a feminist, a piece of feminist propaganda? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was, was that a leading question? Not what I said. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I did text David earlier, say I'm ready to go. I got my man hating on. So, I mean, that was a yeah. joke. That was a joke. Right. Yeah. Well, I think the issue with this story that's different from Desiree's baby and and it could be construed as a piece of feminist propaganda, absolutely, uh, or just a you know hard hitting truth telling story that if you call it propaganda, you are you know it's obviously. But I think what yeah, I meant more just, than that is I want to clarify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'll just d- yeah. ellipsis. Yes, dot, I don't. Dot, dot. I don't really mean that it's a piece of pure feminist propaganda. No, I know you don't. I know you don't. But um, you use hyperbole when talking about this story right? It's easy to use hyperbole when talking about this story. As you read it, it intentionally, she intentionally creates two sides of one story, which is different from Desiree's baby. And she did that on purpose. It's part of the form. It's part of the meaning. It's, and it's, that's how it is written. There's a man side and there's a woman side. Uh, and so that's intrinsic within the story. And, and so I naturally read it from the point of view of the woman's side. So I right. love and, and- go ahead. In Desiree's baby, she Desiree did not have a voice, and, right. and here we have voices. But the women only sort have of. voices with each mm-hmm. other; they yes. do not have a voice in the presence of the men. And so, I, I would, I guess, I want to say, caution readers that not to get hung up on the issue of justice. I mean, that is one of the issues, but I, I do not think it is correct to primarily read this story as is it right for her to go to jail for this murder? Because that's not the point of the story. The point is to contrast the way women see reality and the way men see reality and um, yeah. the different so, spheres that they operate in. And, and it's, it's a study in contrast that way. Yeah, so one of the things that I think is is worth noting is in some ways there's that's one of the fundamental differences or what you're getting at is related to one of the fundamental differences between a short story and say a novel. So if it's a novel that is a murder mystery, like murder on the Orient express or, you know, one of the many 1960s and seventies crime novels that I like to read. um, You've got the, the point is, uh, is you have, you have the, the whole length of a book to kind of suss out, the questions of justice right and and what she's not really that's not really what this story is about this story no. is not about um it's not it's not really even about did this person do it exactly right. um and it's it's a it's not really about whether or not this person should be punished mm-hmm. i mean it's about whether it's what it's about is um whether or not her peers think she should be punished for what she did. It's not about whether we think she did. It's about, it's more of a psychological study of what these other people think. But um, you were talking, Heidi, about the idea of two sides. Mm -hmm. And when I read this story, so the first time I read it, I think the first time I read it was back in college in a fiction writing class. Um, And the whole course was based on mystery and horror stories. So that's why it's in my giant best American mystery stories of the century um, anthology. That sounds like a cool class. I wish I would have taken that class. So a lot of it was, it was very cool. So a lot of it was um, very sort of craft oriented. And I think there's a lot of subtle craft things going on here and a lot of things that are more obvious. Like she builds the layers into how she reveals 
the mystery and how she kind of reveals how good of a writer she is. So like in the first paragraph, you talk about the, you talk about the two sides thing mm-hmm. throughout, throughout almost every page, there is an illusion or an image of something being two sided. Yeah. So in the first paragraph you get the, um, her, what her, what took her, what her, but what her eye took in was that her kitchen was in no shape for leaving her bread already for mixing half the flour sifted and half unsifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, this is that objective correlative idea, right? Yes. Like she is creating all these images that are on the nose in terms of the meta, what the meta trying, trying to express a theme through met through image and metaphor, but they're also, um, well, uh, so she's got all these, she's got this objective correlative and she's creating all these images that reveal that theme. And like, you could have a lot of fun with students, for example, or just on your own. Like I had a lot of fun. You just look for, for all the two-sided images, which is something that Angelina talks about all the time, right? You bring that up all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, reversals and things being two-sided and the two uh, images being put in opposition to each other. Um, you'll see it. Um, yeah. So this entire story hinges on two kitchens. Yep. I'm trying to find, um, well, and so, so she's really good at creating images with meaning and she's really good at signaling. Like she's really yes. good at signaling a character's inner life through their physical life. Yes. So one of the great things, really great fiction writer. Go ahead. One, one of the great things about short stories, um, and this is for our, our listeners who, who have expressed how much they, they are learning how to read. Short stories are very, very good for learning how to read because a novel has so much coming at you. It can be very difficult not to get overwhelmed. And, and so much space is happening in between parallel scenes that you might miss it. But everything is compressed in a short story. And so it's a lot easier to trace that idea that things are going to build on itself and repeat. And each time it repeats, it repeats for a reason. So in a short story, and I've said this before, everything that you need to know about this entire story is going to happen in the first paragraph. And that happens here, right? Um, We have the idea of a woman being called away from her kitchen by the needs of a man, and she leaves everything in disarray half done. Um, And that is, of course, going to be one of the ways that Martha figures out what happened with Minnie Foster, right, is that her kitchen was half cleaned. Something obviously stopped it something interrupted it. Um, And then you also see all the, so that's a plot point. Thematically, of course, you see the idea that she doesn't like um, her kitchen being left in disarray and she doesn't want to be judged by it. And that's a large part, that feeling of you shouldn't judge a woman um, because you don't know what could have called her away. That, that thematic thing is going to push her through a lot of her, her, um, behavior in in the latter part of the story when she starts cleaning up the kitchen and um so yeah so there's i i it's really brilliantly structured uh i I quite enjoyed that uh seeing the structure seeing all of the foreshadowing of what they were going to do at the end the fact that martha constantly wants to cover over for minnie foster she's gonna excuse the dirty kitchen she's gonna clean the dirty kitchen she fixes the quilt stitching um and then uh, the jam, the, the the fact that she wants to, they want to perform a deception with regard to the jam. Uh, all of that points to this this feeling that women need to be protected uh, and, and helps to prepare us for the, the deception at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. And protected by each other. That That's a huge part of this story, even in the title, which I actually really love that title for the play as well. And then 
it kind of changes the story that shows the power of a title. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that Martha Hale remembers her as Minnie Foster is really lovely. And I, I thought that was just such a beautiful detail, how she names her uh, separate from her marriage and remembers her as a happy child. It contributes to the pathos of the story, but also the structure to your point that everything matters in these short stories. You pay attention to everything, the descriptions, the repetitions, the names, title, all of it. Let's look at, um, well, let's look at the, the, uh, the way let's look at an early scene, Mm -hmm. put it that way. Um, it is, oh, another, so uh, another, as I was looking here for the scene, another one of those two-sided things that comes up is the line where it talks about the sheriff was a heavy man with a big voice who was particularly genial uh-huh. with a lo- with the law abiding as if to make it plain that he knew the difference between criminals and non-criminals. <clears throat> and, um, and then you've also got the uh, cabinet, which is half cabinet. Um, what is it? What did they say? Uh, half ca- half closet, half cupboard. Huh. Um, mm-hmm. And so the one of the things I was thinking about is in a mystery, what you're going for is is resolution, right? So a great mystery story, even if there's stasis at the end of it, it typically is going to provide like the goal is to provide the resolution, right? right? To provide some sense of resolution. So in a lot of ways, this is a story that sort of subverts the common experience of reading a mystery story. Like it basically says, these are the things that I know you want, but I'm not going to give them to you. Huh. Um, because I think it's saying like, it's, you know, that one line that the difference between criminals and non-criminals. And so like, is Minnie Foster, Minnie Wright, is she more of a criminal or a non-criminal? Like she committed a crime. Right. But is there a different, like, does that, which side of those two differences does it make? Like the half, like this half cup, like when you look at flour, half sifted, half unsifted, right? right? Like Mm -hmm. half the table clean, half the table not clean. Right. Um, Does like for the table, for example, does it make, if the table's more clean or less clean, how much more of a table is it? Huh. Well, and also the idea that, the men looked at the half clean, half dirty table and saw a dirty table. Yes. Mrs. Hale scenes a half clean table that obviously was interrupted in the process of being clean. They, the men immediately judge her as a bad housekeeper. Mrs. Hale is thinking of all the ways that a man would come in and dirty this kitchen. Huh. Do you guys think then that... So do you think Susan Glassbell is making a statement about men? Or a statement about women? I I read both in here. The way that, again, to go back to that trifles idea, that the women, Mrs. Peters and Mrs. Hale, they, they walk in and they see the mystery in the trifles, right? They, they know there's a reason for this, not just a label. You're a bad housekeeper, right? Uh, they see... A, a, a world in disarray and there's always a reason for that who who do the women and that's where they go into the trifles in order to 
uh, bring the resolution, okay. right? To your point, like that's how they want to get to the resolution. They can bring order yes. through yes. things that are considered Looking, tribal. going into the chaos instead of just avoiding it and labeling it. That's the, the men don't even see that, right? They just see a label. They see you, bad housekeeper. <clears throat> well, okay. Devil's advocate here. Yeah. Do you think that... It's, couldn't you say it's just a matter of perspective though? Absolutely. Of course you can, because they're actually both right. Both sides. It's, it's halves, not opposites. Right. Like one of the things that yeah. the men keep talking about is it's such a cheerless place. Yes. And like, they're not wrong mm -hmm. about that. They're wrong to the, blame it on her though. Well, they're wrong because they're, but so, yeah. okay, well, hold on. Let me, let yeah, me, let ahead. me respond to that. Yeah. I think that's actually not entirely true. So I don't think that they're, I don't think that they're, um, I don't think that they're wrong, not wrong. I'm trying, how do I, what's the correct phrasing of this? <laughs> I think that they are in some ways right to blame her, not in that she was wrong for it, but that she was not able to, like the women blame him, the, the husband and the men blame her. They're both right in some, to some extent. Like they're, they're, he, he did not create an environment that was cheerful and she was not able to overcome that. Mm -hmm. So they're both, I mean, like ultimately sure we can say that as rights, the man's problem. But what they're pointing out is that her housekeeping and her was not such that it was able to overcome the problems of her, that her husband presented. Yeah. I don't mean to say that that I'm not taking blame away from her. Right. But what right. They, so they're right in as much as they're pointing that out. Um, and so the prop, so what they're doing is it's, so they're both siding with their own tribes. Like Martha is not willing to, and well, gender, you know, Martha is not willing to, um, judge, um, many, right. But the important thing that I think Susan gospel puts in here that adds a lot of depth to the story is that the first third of the story is her judging her husband. Right. And they, the men don't judge right very much, right. but they judge the, the, um, the wife. So they yeah. tend, each of them are tending to side yes. with their own sex. Right. Right. Um, and I, it's a, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I agree with that, but I think there's also another level going on here too. So, so considering when this was written, this is the Edwardian period. So right at the end of the Victorian period, you still have a lot of those same ideas at play. And in particular, what you're seeing here too, it's not just men and women, but it's public sphere, private sphere. sphere. Um, and the public sphere, of course, in the Victorian period was associated with men and the lives that they live and the private sphere, the domestic sphere um, is the female sphere. And so part of what's happening, and it's very closely collect, connected to gender, but part of what's happening is the men just live in disregard of the private sphere, as the whole world did. Right. As it still struggles to. So for them, they are looking for- What do you mean by disregard? For, so- just, I'm for, just okay, so, so for disregard, okay, so like there's no, there couldn't be any clues in this kitchen. This is just, it's just a kitchen. Right, she's a That's, bad housekeeper. Yeah. The like, end. Right? So, 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 they, so they leave the women to solve it. Yes, because, because for them, the murder, this is a public crime and we've brought in public officials and we've got to do this a certain way. And it, it doesn't occur to them to look into the private to inform the public, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Which well, that's what's happening on the cultural level as, as well. Right. And to David's point, they both arrive at the truthful conclusion. Like it's pretty clear from the story. She did it right. So they, the men get there for, because of their, to your point, Angelina, their public reasons. 
there's nobody else, uh, all the reasons that they have. The women get to the same conclusion, but they get to it by entering the disarray with compassion and the men get there through applying the law, right? So again, it does that thing of creating two sides uh, uh, and two halves, like that, I think that that is really significant. Though you have to put the two halves together to get the whole. Do you think that in some ways, the approach that she takes, where she gives like the the women attend to the trifles and the men attend yes. to this like very they're very like rationalistic and the women are like more emotional right. about things. Do you think that that um, is playing to stereotypes that are flaw- that to such a, to such an extent that it's a flaw in the story? Either of you? Oh, great question, Angelina. Will you feel that one first? I I, I don't think it's a flaw. Um, I, I, no, I don't, I don't think it's a flaw. And, and do you think it'd be looked at differently if a man wrote it? Yeah. A man wouldn't write it. Right. I do think it would be looked at differently. Uh, this is in every sense, a story about gender issues. Uh, to so your I, point, it's second, the, the, the idea of justice for Mr. Wright is is secondary. Again, that's so different from Desiree's baby, which works on so many different levels. Uh, And so I think that's a valid question. I don't think it's a flaw in the story at all, but I'm not sure what a third wave feminist would think of this story. Okay. So I, I am actually done any reading on that. Yeah. I I don't agree that the story is about two sides and you need both of them. I I have never read the story that way. I, I read the, the male perspective as clearly being portrayed as the worst perspective, the wrong perspective. I I agree with that. And so I would not say that they both come to the same conclusion because the men are not able to tag a motivation. They can't get the motivation. They can't, you know, you cannot hinge a crime on someone without being able to prove why they did it. You have to have a motive and they don't have a motive. And they, so they have failed. They have failed at what they were supposed to do. Um, and the women succeeded because the only way to understand the motive of a woman is to think like a woman. Right. I think you're getting at something really true and important within the story that they, which goes to the bird, right? Like that's, Mm -hmm. which I have to say, this might lighten the mood (laughs) more than I should. But all I could think when I read this part of the story is in Dumb and Dumber, when they say like our pet's heads are falling off. (laughs) So, and the men didn't get it, by the way, in, in Dumb and Dumber, Dumber either. Yeah. But that, I, wonder, I actually yes. wonder now that, now I wonder if it's a reference. Right. So the motive, again, another objective correlative that is crucial to the story. The motive is this delicate, fragile, broken creature that is Minnie Foster and is the bird. Right. And that is the thing that the men completely miss. And desperately, the women have to hide it from them. So I agree yeah. with you, Angelina. Well, okay. So I agree. I d- definitely. But now I'm thinking that, you know, one of the interesting things is that one of the reasons that they fail, if to, to the extent that they, that they do in terms of, well, in terms of finding the motive is that the women, like the I think exactly how to put this. So the 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 women are essentially given a job, right? And they discover it and then they hide it. Right. No, that was not their job. Their job was to collect a few things for her. And they the men mock the idea that the woman could find a clue. 
Yes. They, so, so they were not given the job to search for clues. Well, I guess I was, I wasn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't mean it like they specifically were assigned that. Oh, uh, I they see. Took okay. it, they took it, they kind of took it upon themselves and then, um, I don't think the men would have ever searched the kitchen. Yeah, you're right. That's really um, clear because they mock them for they it. They mock oh, it. Oh, you guys are so cute. Look at you trying to clean up a kitchen when there's a murder upstairs. For them, the clues are upstairs. Right. I, and even their comment about there was a gun in the house. Why didn't she use a gun? Now, now part of, so I'll say this too. Part of this points to the world of 1916, 1917. 1916 is when the play was written. Um, that's not how this would go down today, right? Modern criminal investigations understand that there's motivations and a psychological edge and would be looking for all of those things and would have secured the crime scene and would have found the bird. No, no question. But this is definitely how crimes were solved a long time ago. Um, and And... So it makes for an interesting metaphor. They, the men are completely dismissive of the kitchen repeatedly, just as not just as as potential for clues, but just as it's just it's a woman's world. It just doesn't even cross their radar. Right. Right. And besides, if she they was a bad housekeeper. Right. Right. So, that's all they yeah. can see. And mm-hmm. again, that's a public idea. Yes. I don't think and maybe I'm misreading you guys. I don't think the Susan Glassbell. I think she's mu- much harsher to the women than you guys are. How so? Th- sort of lead coming to think, and I think that there she's much more empathetic with the men. Not that she prefers the men over the women, but that she's more critical of the women and a little more empathetic of the men towards the men than you guys are arguing. Okay, uh, I want to hear this because I don't read that at all. Well, like for example, all the stuff about how she's judging her husband. Um, Do you mean Martha Hale? Martha Hale at the beginning. Yeah. That's interesting. Part, and you think it? that that, so you, wow, we read that very differently. I read all of that as, yes, your husband's an embarrassment. <laughs> Susan Glassbell is showing us that your husband's an embarrassment. I don't think Susan so. Glass- I, I didn't read, I, ha- I don't read any criticism of women in this story at all. Well, I'm not saying that she's being, like, I think that's part of the point, though. I don't think that she's saying that, like, I don't think she is, I mean, I think she's being critical of the way things are done. But I think she sees, I don't think she's like saying uh, that, try, so I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I, I think that this is sort of like a, like it goes, this is not a, I don't think she's trying to be critical. I don't think this is a critical story. Like I think it's like post-critical or something in some ways or something. Okay. We, it may be a difference in semantics because I don't, I don't disagree with you. I don't think the story is a criticism of men as much as it is let's see the world how women see it right so i don't think she's like setting up a yeah I, oh i don't disagree with that yeah right so I, I think we i think we do agree um so i but i do think i mean i don't the the two sides thing you said you're not sure that you, you didn't you don't agree well, with I, that. I, I don't think it's two equal sides because she doesn't give us she only gives the men's perspective to counterpoint the women. So like, we're not, we're not getting the full, the way men would think about it. We're not. Right. Part of that's just the, the, um, the function of point of view. Well, yeah. So, cause we're, it's Martha's point of view. I think she's working under the assumption that we already know the way men view the world and that this story is about helping us to see how women see the world. Right. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, 
so okay this this part where with the husband and his storytelling mm-hmm. you view that as susan glassbell sort of standing behind martha and saying yeah you're right you're what your husband's a, a moron well i don't know that i really well she says I... mrs hale still leaning against the door had that sinking feeling of the mother whose child is about to speak a piece and i know how that feels you're like don't embarrass me <laughs> that yeah so wait how is that not critical of her Oh. oh, I didn't think that was critical of her. How is that, that like I don't like I can't even like that doesn't even I can't even understand because it's so it's condescending. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like you complete- have never been married to a completely embarrassing man. That's all I can say about that. <laughs> but I can, but I can. Right. Well, first of all, she, he then does not go on to prove her right. Huh? Does he not? I don't think so. Because what we're getting is cons- like, I think there's a, so we're getting commentary, which is in her head. Right. It's not Susan Glassbell judging anything. No, it's, I agree. The commentary, I don't, it is Martha's I don't commentary. And this I is- don't believe that he does anything to, to justify her, her opinion of him during that storytelling. He's now there little- he was saying things he didn't need to. Mrs. Shale tried to catch her husband's eye, but fortunately the County attorney interrupted with him. Let's talk about that a little ma- later, Mr. Hale. So the, 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 the lawyer hears the same thing that she hears and calls him back to task. So he's distracted. But it, it works, though. When he began this time, it was very deliberately and carefully. He does correct himself. Like, he doesn't end this No, I don't think he corrects himself. I think the lawyer world. corrected him. Well, and but I, it says specifically that he, he um, began... Oh, this is so interesting. Deliberately. No, what I mean is he did exactly what she said he was going to do. That right, he was going that's to wander true. off. And then she, right at the same moment when she thinks, no, there he goes, he's wandering off. The lawyer also hears that he's wandering off and says, talk about that later. Get so, back to answering my questions. And then he does when the man right. says that. So this is where my this is where my point comes in about them judging. Right. You judge your own tribe, so to speak. Right. The man's world. All the lawyers. Or you don't judge do. your own. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't, you're more likely to judge the opposite sex than you are your own. Um, which of course it comes across like I'm defending the men here and I'm really not, I'm thinking more about the structurally. Right. Um, See, even in those two sentences that are juxtaposed, you've got private and public. Mrs. Hale is trying to silently catch her husband's eye to alert him to you're going off track, right? Mm -hmm. The lawyer though, he has the, the privilege to speak it, to say, no, get back on task. Right. And then, but they, then, but they both observe the same so, thing. Sure, sure, sure. And I'm not even saying, I'm not saying they're observing something wrong or that her observation is wrong. My point is that her, her judgment regarding that observation is extreme. Hmm. Like to judge him as a, to treat him, to look at him and judge him and almost certainly treat him as a child for that kind of behavior, I think is, is not just. Right. Well, and this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning it's of like this Hamlet. conversation. Yes. Which is the, the issue of there has to be a way that in a story structured like this to create tribes or to shine a light, even if it's not intended necessarily to create tribes, although I'd probably argue. Uh, well, you have to create a conflict. Right, that, that it is shining a light. So on it that I realized I didn't think anything of, I did not judge her harshly for that. And I think it's because 
I'm a woman. So I read this in a tribal way, whether I mean to or not, no matter how much of a literary scholar I think I am, right? I'm reading this. Well, I think that Susan Glasswell is playing to stereotypes again here. So she's playing to the stereotype of the wife who sort of, even in an, you know, I mean, there is a, for centuries, there has been the motif of even in a world that was dominated by men of the woman who like, looked at her husband as a child. Right. Like that's, that's a huge literary that goes, that's forever. Sure. And, um, so she's creating the stereotype of the wife who is kind of, despite having a man being the dominant people, having kind of a domineering husband and the husband to look silly. Right. And then she's also playing to the, to the stereotype of the man who kind of is a little bit. Right. Okay. I, I see immature. now where you and I are, are reading this differently. So I get now that you're saying you feel like she's treating her husband like a child. And I did not read it that way. I did not read the metaphor of she's standing there nervous, like a mother looking over her child as meaning that she treats her husband as a child. Here's how I read that. I read that as the nervousness and anxiety she has that someone is about to publicly represent her. Her husband is the one who has the voice, not her. And that idea of the husband and wife and that identity of the two of them being really just one public identity goes through the entire story. So the first time we meet the sheriff's wife, mm-hmm. they say she didn't look like a sheriff's wife. You know, well, she uh, why doesn't does it, have a why strong doesn't she voice. Look like, why doesn't she look like a sheriff's wife? She should be the sheriff's wife. And then later on, they make the joke about you can trust her. She's married to the law as if they're just one person. Right. right. Yeah. So. So I don't think I did not read it. And I, and if I did read it as she's treating her husband like a child, then I would, I would see it your way that that's, that's a criticism of her, but I did not read it as she treats him as a child, as much as she has that anxiety that someone is about to publicly represent her. He's going to be the voice for them. And she's afraid of what that voice might be. And, and and that goes, I think through the whole story, how they're, I mean, they, the women keep trying to distinguish Minnie Foster from Minnie Wright. They're trying to mm-hmm. give her that separate identity. And right at the beginning of the story, we know that the sheriff's wife has a separate identity, although the men don't see it. Mrs. Hale sees she doesn't look like a sheriff's wife. The men can't see that. They're like, oh, she can be trusted. She's the sheriff's wife. She's married to the law. It's like she is the law. So for them, it's all that they're one person. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. I, I mean, we're kind of talking about like very subtle differences here in the story. Um, like, like, you know, we're on a whole, on the whole, we're going to agree on almost all of this. I, I, you know, the part about the sheriff's wife, you like, there are long stretches where the sheriff's wife doesn't actually have a name. Mm-hmm. Right? She's just called the sheriff's wife. So I did, I went back and forth and I noticed there was a lot of alternating between that. Like it would say Mrs. Peters and then it would say the sheriff's wife. I was trying to figure out what she was doing there. Um, what, like whether there was differences of point of view, like where, where it was saying um, Mrs. Peters, if that was one point of view. Mm-hmm. And then but look at this. Was- I love this. When he starts his story. So right after she's had this fear that he's going to be representing them publicly, uh, he starts his story and Susan Glassbell calls him Mrs. Hale's husband. Began. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's very deliberate. Yep. Oh, sure. Yeah. So when I say that, I, when I say that, I think that Susan Glassbell is judging her for that or criticizing her. What I'm trying to say is not that she's saying that like that she's like wrong that she treats like she's a jerk or something like that what i'm trying to say is i think that susan glasswell is trying to create uh much more levels of complexity in the characters like we can't just read these as one note like um like if we did that it would the the depth wouldn't be there um the depth of the relationships wouldn't be there and the conflict of this story is not whether you know is not the murder the conflict of the story is like as you it's how we know what we know who gets to decide what we know 
and who gets to say it. Right. So I don't disagree with what you're saying about people having a voice, um, that she's giving voice to someone who would normally not have a voice. Um, I don't disagree with any of that kind of stuff. I'm just suggesting that what she's trying to do is create, create more complexity there. And yes, I agree with that because, uh, uh, with the exception of the deceased of whom we don't know very much, the men in the story aren't bad men. Right. Yes. They're, they're kind of, they're, they're clueless about the right. world of women, but they're not bad. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't, and that's where I think, you know, but women might be clueless about the world of men. Like, I don't mean that to be one-sided. I, right. I was going to say, I think what Susan Glasswell's kind of getting at there is that like, because it's so difficult, like, because it's so difficult to truly, to truly understand another person, um, or like what, let alone a whole gender, right? <laughs> like it's almost easier. What it's easier to understand, like, the the sort of generalities of another gender right. than it is an individual person. So like if you're going to give if that if if a specific woman is going to have a voice, like that's actually harder to sort of like make happen functionally mm. than it is to like let women like as sort of a broader group have a voice. Like Right. So like what she does here, she gives voice to specific women on something on very specific trifles. Right. Right. So I think that's what she's, one of the things she's getting at is like, um, I'm trying to, I'm not saying this very well. I think she's trying to give voice to specifics. Right. Yes. Specific people. Yes. She's not trying and to, she's the, not saying yes. women need a voice. It's not like a political thing. Like women need a voice. Right. It's more like this woman needs a voice. Right. Yes. And I, and I love one of the ways that she does that is that Mrs. Hale and Mrs. Peterson, they don't have the same voice and we right, never, right. and so Mrs. Hale doesn't even know how to interpret the sheriff's wife. She's afraid. And, and, and she doesn't hardly say anything until the end, right? When she surprises us all by saying, I had a kitten once. Yes. And now all of a sudden, you know what's been going on in her head, but you didn't know. Mrs. Hale didn't know. None of us knew. We're all working under the assumption that she's going to, she's, she's going to tell her husband, she's going right. to turn that's this the, over. That's where the point of view is Austin, because it's all in Martha Hale. And then it's being revealed bit by bit. And that's, it's a mystery story. And the tension comes because of the slow reveal of information. And one of the things that she does really well is like, it's as she, as well, it's like with any mystery story, right? When you're in the head of the detective, it's you're only you're getting the information a little bit at a time right. and actually one of the things she does is she has the um the not the sheriff but the um the attorney or the okay mm -hmm. the county attorney yeah the mm -hmm. county attorney like every now and then he'll say like he'll ratchet up the tension of what they need to do next and so like it creates this i gotta see if i can find it it creates this um it creates i don't know if i would say drama well at least a sense of time impending on the proceedings, right? That something is about right. to happen. And so the women have to make a decision what they're going to do with the information that they have gathered. Um, yeah. And so like, as, and as you go, characters are actually changing a little bit, right? Because like just a little bit, like as they gain a little bit more information, they begin to change. Um, and then there's like this point where all of a sudden, maybe halfway through the story or a little less three quarters of the way, two thirds, you know, something specific. She, uh, she'll, you realize, oh, the women know, right? Like they they know what's going on, and we still have seven pages left. So then the question, go ahead. Right. Oh, okay. So I found one something that you were referring to, David. It's good. Um, hold on, let me try to figure out where it is in the story. 
Have they found the bird yet at this point? Oh, yes. They found the bird. Uh, Mrs. Peters is having her internal struggle over her divided loyalties. She's looking loyalties. on the internet, so we can't, we don't have yes. page, page numbers I'm here. I'm sorry, I can't give you a page number. <laughs> uh, she sank into her chair. Okay, the county attorney did not heed her. No sign of, of course, right? That's how the, that's how the paragraph begins. The yeah. county attorney did not heed yeah. her. Yeah. No sign at all of anyone having come in from the outside, he said to Peters uh, in the manner of continuing an interrupted conversation. This is a brilliant paragraph. <laughs> Their own rope. Now let's go upstairs again and go over it piece by piece. It would have to have been someone who knew just the blah, blah. So they kind of swoops in to give information that they are the door, closing the in. Behind them, yes. Yeah. And they're not paying any attention to the women who have just discovered this bombshell of the bird and Mrs. Peters, who I find just the most interesting character because her loyalties are genuinely divided uh, because she is married to the sheriff. And so she yeah, has the to inner come. turmoil that's going on yes. about her hardly saying anything until the end is really well it's drawn. Lovely. Yes, it's perfect. That whole all of the tension of her having to make this decision in an instant between these two worlds that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. That uh and part of it is the county attorney just coming in and 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 saying things like this, right? That no, like the rope is slowly closing in around Minnie Foster as it has closed around her husband. So I, as I was reading it, I was trying to figure out like, to what extent could the, would the bird, like what's the bird going to technically prove in the court? Right. Well, one of the things the county attorney says is that jury's like a story. Right. And that's yeah. what he's trying to find. Oh, and so it, it would give a story. Mm-hmm. And then, but Mrs. Peters and Mrs. Hale know there's a story. They know there's a story. They're looking for the story. Well, and how brilliant is that statement? We need a story in order to accuse and condemn this woman. Whereas right. the story that the women have uncovered is a story that brings them into compassion for her. And, and understanding and solidarity and sisterhood, right? I know just yeah. how she feels. Was it really wrong? Which again, it's not the point of the story. I don't want to get bogged down with that, but that's what's going on with them. Whereas the men are just looking to, you know, solve the case. My, my favorite line in the whole story, and I don't know if this is apropos to anything we're talking about, but my favorite line <laughs> is when the, the men say, really, we're supposed to believe you didn't wake up when somebody came in and slipped a rope around his neck and Mrs. Hale thinks, well, he didn't wake up. <laughs> <laughs> but then, <laughs> I just love that. And then she's like, I'm a sound sleeper. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, there's this part a little bit after, I think it's right. I'm trying to find the spot that Heidi was just reading. Um, but it's, um, right after they found the bird. Yeah. And it says suddenly she leaned forward looking intently at the cage. This is Martha. What do you suppose went wrong with it? Hmm. I don't know. Returned Mrs. Peters unless it got sick and died. But after she said it, she reached over and swung the broken door. Both women watched as if somehow held by it. You didn't know her, Mrs. Hale asked, a gentler note in her voice. Not till they brought her yesterday. Um, she, come to think of it, was kind of like a bird herself. Real sweet and pretty, but kind of timid and, and fluttery. How she, how she did change. That held her for a long time. 
finally as if struck with a happy thought and relieved to get back to everyday things, she exclaimed, tell you what, Mrs. Peters, why don't you take the quilt in with you? It might take off her mind. Um, I think this is where they know. Yes, I agree with that. Um, and there's the whole, you didn't know her line, like even the way it's punctuated and written. Um, and like, there's a gentler note in her voice. And yes. Like, yes. I think Mrs. Hale is trying to not let Mrs. Peters know at this point. Cause she doesn't know she can trust her. Oh, so. Well, that's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that. When I read that scene, I think Mrs. Hale instantly knows what it is and then tries to divert Mrs. Peters attention. Okay. So this is where maybe this is a difference in terms of how we like to read stuff. I'm very intrigued by the question, at least in for a conversation. I'm not saying we have to talk about it now, but like you mentioned that this isn't really a story about justice. And I, and I agree with that, but um, that's a, still a conversation you can have. Right. Like oh, right. You could, yes. Say, do yes. you think she should reveal I, it? I do think it's about justice, but I think the object of that justice is not John Wright, but Minnie Foster. Mm. Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 Two sides again. again two things. Yes. Because, you know, there is the question. I mean, there's a lot of questions of justice here. Right. It, would it be just, should they reveal what they know? Right. Should yes. Minnie Foster have done what she did? Or or can we at least have empathy for her? I think that's the big right. question is like, yeah, it, sure. She probably needs to be punished for, legally. Like legally, there's no question that if she did it, she needs to be, suffer the consequences ah, of that. Well, but what does that empathy legally, there's to? no question right. about that. Well, because, well, if you want to get all legal about it, if I was her lawyer, I'd give a post-traumatic stress defense. Sure, sure. But I'm saying if, okay, if she killed the guy, right. there needs to be something, a discussion needs to happen. I'll put it that yes, way. Yes, agreed. Now, okay. I do think it's interesting that in terms of the story, let's see if you guys agree with this. In terms of the story, I think we are to believe that justice was done to John Wright. Right. I agree with that. He's yeah. almost a moot point in some yes. ways. Like he's gone and he was a jerk, right? That seems yes. to be the, that, so yeah, what do we what do then? Him, yes. But does he she fell into the to hole he dug for someone else, right? Right. Um, yeah. So the well, yeah, his now, manner like, of, I mean, to the point of, of why wasn't he shot? He wasn't shot because the bird was, neck was broken. Right. And so therefore he, that's the objective correlative. He, he deserved then to die strangled. Right. So there's this justice there. Minnie Foster's not a dummy. She did to him what he did to her. So then, so. The, so then you have the question of, I guess the, one of the big questions is what is the relationship between empathy and justice? Right. Like when someone does something that is technically against the law, the conversation needs to happen. And yeah, you can say you could do the PTSD right. um, conversation. Um, I almost wonder though, if it's like, if they, if you're talking about with like students mm -hmm. or if you're just talking about it, with your friends and you're just talking about the story. I wonder to what extent Susan Glassbell would say that if you're just going to say, well, I don't mean just, but if you're going to say the P if you're going to go to the PTSD conversation, if that diminishes the conversation about empathy, like if you, right. And maybe, maybe the point is she's suffering from that. So then you need to have empathy for her. Right. Well, and to, to the point of what, and I don't mean to say that like the PTSD. Right. I'm not saying that's not a real thing. Matter. I'm wondering like what, how much no, she would and, care and, about that. And I, and when I hear myself say it, I'm aware of how d dismissive it sounds. And I would not. I that's not the first place I would go to in a discussion about justice with the story. I just, I just meant it's not a given that right. she automatically would be convicted. Of course, certainly. Well, and again, we're we're in the world of this story, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you ask Heidi White what I think of 
if a wife kills her husband, should she be held accountable? That's a very different question from what is this story about? Yes, absolutely. We are in the world of this yep. story. And we're talking about specific people. Yes. Again. And, and so, in 1917, again, yeah. they find the bird, she's convicted. Boom. We know that's that's what would happen. Right. Yeah. They found a reason. Yeah. And so therefore, we, we need to stay... To you, this is exactly what you said earlier, Angelina, when we started the conversation, which I thought was brilliant. Stay in the story. Don't go to our own assumptions and our own, when I say our own moralities, I'm not saying that it is uh, a subjective question, uh, but this story has a, its own world. And in the world of this story, we are talking about justice for Minnie Foster not justice for John Wright. And that's right. where the conversation needs to be around. And that is a much more interesting conversation, actually. And which is to Susan Glassbell's point, like she's trying to look into the trifles. Right. And I also think we have the idea of competing narratives of Minnie Foster's life. So right. the lawyer is looking for the quote unquote story. But what he means by that is the way to make... Um, the case come together, a story that will make the case come together. Whereas the, the women, right. And, and, and that's right. Rightly. So um, that is what they are supposed to do. Uh, but the women are looking at the, what they would consider to be the real story of Minnie Foster. How did she end up like this? Why are the stitches all a mess? What, what was she feeling? Um, mm -hmm. And so when I read the story and I think about Minnie Foster on the, on the stand, as facing a conviction is, is I wonder, would that story ever be told? Hmm. What is the story that would be told about her? One of the things that as you're speaking and that I was thinking about while I was reading that I couldn't get away from is the way that I, I think Susan Glassball is saying that like, it's not, it's everybody who is dehumanized by these kind of relationships. So hmm. um, like she talks a lot about how the sheriff is married to the law. So that not mm -hmm. only is Mrs. Peters married to the sheriff, but the sheriff is married to the law. Like he's, it, it refers to him as, um, it, he's nameless quite often. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, and the, the county, the, the county, um, attorney is like mm -hmm. only obsession is this one particular story. He's like so wrapped right. up in it. They don't have, they can't think for themselves. Like they're not individual. They barely have individual agency of any kind. Like they're, I mean, the law is, the law is a powerful good right? right but they're so wrapped up in it that their own they're like almost dehumanized no that's true there's that line at the beginning which i read uh, several times before it kind of sunk in because it had an odd construction but when mrs hale looks at uh mr peters and says she realized that they were going over there and he was going as the sheriff right right so you have the sheriff and the attorney and yes they represent the law and they have a very specific task which is not necessarily to feel empathy for a accused. Right. Which goes to the, uh, like the binary that you brought up earlier, Angelina, about public and private, right? That there's, right. that's what you're talking about, David. There's not only is there a male female binary in this story, there's all, there's also a public and a private and the women have, they can give voice to that private and then they, they choose to keep it in their own little world, right? Mm. Because of the question of justice for Minnie Foster. I was thinking about how, in some ways, it had Martha and Mrs. Um, the Sheriff's Wife. Peters. Peters. Mm -hmm. um, Mrs. the Sheriff's Wife. Yeah. Had she... Um, <laughs> that would be appropriate There we go. Story, yes. Though. Had they, had they um, revealed what they knew 
it would have actually actually looked the line I'm looking at right now said Maybe. no said the sheriff's wife so there you go that's totally appropriate <laughs> yeah. but it could have been empowering huh for them to give the information like the people like the detective could have been like huh look at you you know okay like so I kind of read it and I'm, I'm having a hard time and we gotta we gotta close this down here pretty quick but so. I kind of read it as they don't think that they will understand right like the motivations. Yeah. you'll If I give them this bird, they're going to think X, but really they should think X, Y. Yeah, I agree. And that goes back to what I'm saying. Like when you're so caught up in a specific way of looking at the world, like the attorney is, it diminishes your human capability to interact with it fully. Mm-hmm. So she, so he can, he's not, he because he's only looking at it from one perspective, it, it seems likely that he'd be incapable of looking at it looking at Minnie is fully human and thus dehumanizing himself. And I think that that's also part of what's going on here. Um, and that, I, it, you know, what is it, what's it going to mean to Martha and Mrs. Uh, Peters for the rest of their lives to hold that secret in? Like that's, I think that's an interesting question. A very interesting question. All right. Final thoughts. We got to wrap this up. We got to go to a conference. <laughs> <laughs> How do you want to go first? Um, we have, there's a lot more we could have talked about. There's so many structural and narrative things here. Um, Angela talks about the public and private. There's a lot of things we can talk about that as related to the character, how the characters um, evolve in the story and how they're presented. Right. Um, this is a story that benefits from being read and reread uh, at which I have failed, but I'm going to, you know, I still have the rest of my life to read it again. <laughs> so um, I would say the next thing I'm going to be paying attention to as I go through are, are all of the characters making decisions. Um, at what point does Angelina, you brought up that point earlier. I think this is when whatever it was that you said. And I, I want to pay attention to those points. And I, and I think Susan Glassbill gives us enough to be able to interpret those points and saying, here's when Martha Hale makes such and such a decision that leads to... There's lots of turning points in this story as the information is uncovered. Right. Mrs. Hale makes that decision very early that yes. she's going to keep this well, information. Well, she has so no divided loyalties, right? That's right. That's right. A farmer's wife who failed to visit her friend over the years and she feels bad and she wants to make up for that, all these things. But it's different for the other characters, particularly Mrs. Peters, who is the most tormented throughout the process and rightly so. And so what? at what point does she make these choices? Um, at what point do the men have an opportunity to believe the women or, or ask them questions and choose to belittle that, you know, those kinds of things. So, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to read it again and pay attention to those moments more. Mm -hmm. that, that's Lina. good. Um, just, just, there was a, a moment which really kind of emotionally affected me in, in the story at the very beginning when they get to the, to the right house and Mrs. Hale pauses at the threshold and she doesn't want to cross the threshold. And she says, it's because she didn't come in mm -hmm. the past. And uh, mm -hmm. just this idea of, I didn't come as a friend. So now how can I enter this house as accuser? And she thinks about that a lot, that they're only, the men are in there coming in as accusers. And yeah, um, there's that, that moment where she almost blames herself. Yes. And that's deeply emotional for me. And it's very well portrayed mm -hmm. by our author here because there is this idea that women are isolated and alone and she didn't have any children and she didn't have any friends. And maybe we're all sort of responsible for what happened here. I should have reached out to her. She should have had a community. She shouldn't have been so alone in this pain. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I love what you, I love the way you talk about the private and the public because 
I've been thinking lately about how like the development of character in any sort of fiction, whether it's a play, a movie, um, a novel, a short story, whatever it is, is essentially sort of the confluence of those two things. Like a truly developed character is the sort of intersection of the private life expressed publicly or not expressed. And like, that's what makes the depth of character. Um, it's when if I, to, 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 to cultivate a fully human character, like a real character, multidimensional character, mm-hmm. you have to be able to get at the inner life and figure out mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. much of that it becomes public and how much of it stays private. And that's like the, right. that is the character that is the conflict of character yes within any great story Mm -hmm. so i love how you bring that out and i think this this story gets at that in a really um sort of inventive way right Um, oh yes oh yeah and i mean i mean just finished reading uh ian forster's uh aspects of a novel he talks about that and i was reading some north of fry essays that talk about that they all talk about how the novel lets you see inside of a character and i think about how much of the tension that and i bet our readers still don't know what i'm talking about how much of the tension that i feel in a story is in those disconnect moments between two characters where we know what they're each thinking versus what they're saying right you know and yes. you just want to be like just tell him you love him right like you know, tell him you're sorry you should tell her you're you know and, and right. they're feeling it but they don't say it again so they're so i, th- I think yeah you you're well served to read stories looking for the public and private because the things we say versus the things we're feeling there's so often that disconnect and that's what causes so many conflicts in stories and and in life right yeah that's Mm. good well i gotta go (laughs) as do we all the suitcase will not pack itself exactly sadly (laughs) (laughs) yeah seriously um what do you think of hiring a packing assistant Oh, brilliant. I am all for all kinds of, I have the long list of assistant needs. That's right. Yes. Yes, David, have your children pack for you. I can't wait to see your outfits for the week. Oh, no. (laughs) Jeremiah. Oh, Jeremiah would have you on point. I take that back. I'm actually probably fine. Tell him he needs to be your stylish shirt. Exactly. And hide a comma in it. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, Thanks to everyone who has been supporting us on Patreon. Um, Thanks for all the conversation. If you want to uh, join the conversation on this show, you can obviously do that on Facebook. And then make sure that you have signed up for the Close Reads newsletter. That will be going out again in a week or so. Well, probably probably next week. So like 10 days from now for a second edition, edition issue. Edition. 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 I love that. You just made a portmanteau word. (laughs) Lewis Carroll would be proud. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, so sign up for that. You can do that on the link at the bottom of the the description wherever you are listening to the show. And again, thanks for listening. Thanks to Heidi White and Angelina Stanford for another lively conversation. Uh, Happy reading, and we'll be back next week with another short story. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.